Mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts and philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. This is a very special episode of the podcast because it's a live episode. It's the second one. I did one for the 100th episode, but uh, this is the first one where we have two people on a, a podcast episode, and they're going to be disagreeing with each other. It's not a formal debate or anything like that. It's a discussion. Uh, which is safer for everyone. I'm already super nervous as it is, but uh, I'm I'm very excited for my guests uh, to talk about the Lord of Non-Contradiction and Argument for God from Logic. And I have with me Dr. Alec Ma- Alex Malpass and Dr. James Anderson. Uh, Dr. Malpass has recently written a paper called Problems for the Argument from Logic, a response to the Lord of Non-Contradiction, and that's in Sophia uh, 2021. And it's a response to uh, a Philosophia Christie article from 2011, which is co-written by Dr. Anderson and Dr. Greg Welty. So uh, I'm really excited about that. If you guys are here for the first time, please subscribe on YouTube. Leave me a comment. Um, want to hear from you guys. I can see the live chat as it's coming in. So if you guys have questions, uh, throw those in there and maybe I can read those during our conversation. And um, you can also become a, a Patreon supporter to support this podcast if you like what I'm doing. And above and beyond, uh, there's also an audio podcast. You can go to Apple Podcasts, leave me a five-star review and a comment. That'd be huge. Then I don't have to do as much intro as I'm doing now. So uh, without further ado, let's pull them on in. All right. Dr. Anderson, Dr. Malpass, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah, I'm muted, but yes, (laughs) happy to be here too. Yeah, we we were having, uh, for those not uh, on the inside, we were having a great conversation about English accents and how Dr. Anderson could tell Dr. Malpass was from the South because of how it sounded. It just blew my mind. Uh, Dr. Anderson and I were also talking about tea versus coffee. Maybe uh, we'll have time to get into that debate and we'll see the the, the heatedness there as well. But first, let's start with the argument from logic. Um, So uh, I'll read Dr. Malpass's uh, summary of Dr. Anderson and Welty's uh, argument, and then we'll, we'll get in and see if that's sufficient. So, if a thought exists necessarily, then it belongs to a necessarily existing mind. Premise one. Premise two, the laws of logic are necessarily existing thoughts. Therefore, there is a necessarily existing mind. Now, Dr. Anderson, uh, is that a fair uh, summary characterization of the argument, uh, the, the Lord of Non-Contradiction argument? Yeah, it is. It is a fair summary. Of course, you've got to recognize that it it is a summary. It gives the basic structure of it. But there's a lot packed into those premises. I mean, the the premises themselves need a lot of defense, uh, sub argumentation to support them. So as as a sort of overview of the thrust of the argument, yeah, it's it's fine. 
Um, but as as all of us know, here know, um, there's quite a bit of support that needs to be brought forth to sustain those premises. Right. Yeah. Okay. And so um, in your paper, Dr. Malpass, you have three uh, lines of response to this argument. The first is is the notion of necessity at play in the argument. The second is the notion of intentionality. And then third is a, a, a dilemma for divine conceptualism, which uh, is the crux of the argument, is, is uh, what the argument depends on here or, or seeks to show. So I thought we could follow that, uh, the outline that you set out in your paper, and we could just start with the notion of necessity at play. Can you um, give us an overview of, of your criticism uh, of the argument based on uh, their notion of necessity? Okay, so um, while I, I like this first sort of uh, way into the argument, I'm not good. over time. I think I'm not, I'm not convinced it's you know hugely important actually. Um, so the idea here is that we, we're talking about necessary truths uh, implying in some way that God exists. It's the argument from logic to to God. Um, and although, of course, the paper, James's paper in particular, talks about uh, the, law, the law of non-contradiction, it really doesn't need to talk about that as opposed to any other necessarily true proposition. Um, and it's not like I don't think there are any metaphysically true proposition, uh, metaphysically necessary propositions. Um, I, th I think there are, and we could just pick one, and then we can run with the argument. So, in some way, I w I'm disputing something that's actually common ground to us, and you know, I'm not completely radical about this. My point really was just that the specific way that the, the, this aspect of the argument was defended in the paper did seem to me rather thin, and it was worth bringing that out. That was that was really what's going on. So, it's it's a shared assumption, in fact, between between us both. Um, but I, I wouldn't venture the types of defense of it that's, that's presented in the paper. So, I mean, strictly speaking, it seems to me it's, an, um, it's not a well-defended aspect of the argument, even though I, I agree with, with that bit of the argument, right? So just to put it into perspective, um, <clears throat> and I think that the type of thing that worries me about this way of doing it, I mean, let's pick the law of non-contradiction for the purposes of the argument, right? Um it seemed to me that the the defense of the claim that that proposition is metaphysically necessary that we get in the paper was was broadly speaking um, an appeal to inconceivability, and I'm I am quite dubious that that's the right way to defend this type of notion. I, I'm quite skeptical of the, um, I guess the legitimacy or something of of appeals to inconceivability in metaphysics. I mean, what that comes down to to me to some extent is. I don't expect my intuitions to be a particularly reliable guide when it comes to weird metaphysical things, right? I just, I imagine I'm probably going to have intuitions that are pointing in all, all the wrong directions, right? That's how I approach metaphysics. So I don't expect, so it doesn't really matter to me, it's, you know, that, I mean, inconceivable can be taken in a couple of ways as well. I mean, like inconceivable given a certain conceptual scheme is completely different to sort of inconceivable um, in any sense. Um, and it seems to me that it's, it's dubious whether anything is completely inconceivable. It might be a contradictory notion it's, yeah. itself, right? Because I, 
name something that's completely inconceivable and I'll conceive of it briefly, if only to wonder whether I can conceive of it or not. Um, but, you know, most of the time when we say something is inconceivable, what we mean is that, like, our current conceptual scheme doesn't allow that to yeah. to be possible. But but we can always adapt our conceptual schemes. And, you know, so, for instance, Kant thought that um, Euclidean geometry was kind of conceptually necessary or whatever. So couldn't think, couldn't conceive of it being false. And it was part of the synthetic a priori structure of how, how cognition worked in general. And, and now we've got non-Euclidean geometry. Everybody thinks general relativity is broadly true and, and everybody's fine with that. Now. Right. <laughs> difficult to understand, but like, you know, nobody, nobody puts forward these kind of Kantian arguments anymore. We just kind of figured out how to think about it like, like that. And there's, there's, you know, there's non, non-classical kind of paraconsistent logics out there these days that don't have non-contradiction as a, as a, an axiom or, or even a theorem. So, um, seems a bit behind the times to say that it's completely yeah. inconceivable, right? Well, can, I mean, can I talk about all the time? So. I, the, the conceivability that I, I picked that up in your in your paper. Um, I wonder how do we f- figure out what's metaphysically because you, you said metaphysical necessity is something that you two hold in common. How do we find out what's metaphysically necessary without con- uh, using conceivability as a guide in our metaphysics? Well, I mean, it's a very good question. Uh, metaphysical possibility seems to me it's a bit of a mess as a as a notion in general right. no one's really got a good idea of what that is lots of partial models kicking around with people more or less engaging with them but i don't think there's a good theory of metaphysical possibility out there um but you know here, here's a thought right one way of gaining knowledge about what's metaphysically possible would be through a much more cautious approach than simply introspecting and seeing what I can conceive of. Mm-hmm. And you might you might think that you can draw inferences to the best explanation on the basis that, um, for instance, someone might make an argument that propositions exist because of the theoretical utility of positing that. Um, it does a lot of work for the, for the ontological cost that you pay for positing them. And that can justify, to some extent, believing that they're real, right? So... Mm-hmm. That might be one way of getting there, but what we're talking about here is a long, long way from like anything like proof, scientific kind of justification, or even kind of just a rational like certainty or something. You just sort of like there's reasons to think that, and if I come to that conclusion, then it's not like completely irrational because yeah. here's my reasons, right? That's that's how I would think we make progress in metaphysics—a delicate balancing act of lots of different considerations okay. and very finely weighed um, evaluations of those. Yeah. Well, Dr. Anderson, do do you have any? Um, I don't know. You're not here to like defend conceivability in, in metaphysics, but do do you have any any line of thought there of, of why it's it is uh, reasonable to use conceivability uh, in this argument? Well, maybe the first thing to say is that that the argument doesn't really require uh, conceivability as a criterion for discerning metaphysically necessary truths or any other necessary truths. And just to back up a bit to to what Alex said at the beginning there. He's absolutely right that, strictly speaking, this isn't an argument from the laws of logic per se, or at least if it is, it doesn't have to be, because it's, it's more generally an argument from necessary truths. Okay, mm-hmm. that's, that's the starting point, the recognition that there are, there are some truths that are necessary, that they, they could not have been false, they could not have been otherwise. And so 
as Alex acknowledged, um, as long as we can find some common ground that there are some necessary truths, and I, I don't think it would actually take us very long to settle on, on a candidate necessary truth like um, uh, no human being is a prime number, right? Okay, I mean, it's kind of silly, but uh, there's something that, you know, a human being could not have been a prime number. There's a, there's a necessary truth there, mathematical truths, um, certain geometric truths and so forth. So in a sense, we could just you know, pick one uh, and run with it. Um, however, I do want to make a little bit of defense of what we say in the, um, in the article, because we do say it's an argument from the laws of logic. Uh, and the reason we do that is that laws of logic, generally speaking, are good candidates uh, for necessary truths that a, a lot of people, unless their minds have been polluted by philosophy, academic philosophy, uh, will, will think that there are laws of logic that are, that are necessary, sort of rules of uh, inference, uh, of validity, that uh, are not only true, but could not have been false. Um, and uh, you know, a good example to get people up and running would be the law of non-contradiction, that no, no proposition can be both true and false. Now, once you start getting into the literature on logic and philosophy of logic, yes, there are challenges to just about any law of logic, certainly the three classical laws of logic. There are challenges. There are people that reject them. Uh, we grant that. We still think that they have a lot of um, intuitive appeal. And in a sense, we're not so much appealing to conceivability as just intuitions about necessity and possibility. And if, if we can't grant even our intuitions some weight in this issue, then I, I'm not sure we're going to get really anywhere in philosophy because you, you're going to have to start with some shared intuitions and ask what, what follows from them. So yes, we, we do uh, start with the laws of logic. Um, there are definitely uh, objections. Uh, there are non-classical logics. Um, but nothing, nothing crucially hangs on us taking any particular law of logic as the starting point for the argument. So if we could, if we could agree that uh, one plus one equals two is a necessary truth, that it could not have been false, or that um, no, no, uh, no one can be both human and non-human at the same time in the same sense, you know, we could go on. But I think, uh, I think we've got enough to get up and running. One other thing I would say is that although um, Alex focuses on the, this term metaphysically necessary, and I do think there are metaphysical necessities, that's not actually our definition of necessity when we refer to necessary truths. We're just speaking of truths that um, could not have been otherwise, that could not have been false, or to use the uh, the, the language of possible worlds, uh, something that is true in every possible world. That would be a, 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 an equivalent uh, phrase for necessary truth. So there. Awesome. Oh, I wonder about the, the, the person relativity of, of proofs. So if someone were a classical, uh, if someone held to classical logic, then this might work for them. But if someone says, no, I, I hold to subclassical or paraconsistent or something, then you say, well, then this doesn't capture you. What, what you've said, Dr. Anderson, is, well, it's about necessary truths. So it could capture uh, anyone who believes in necessary truths. Uh, Dr. Malpass, do you think that, do you think there are necessary truths? And, and do you hold to uh, classical logic yourself? Just a, a random question there for you. Um. Do I think there are necessary truths? I guess I do. Yeah. Um, 
That's right. I'm certainly not, certainly not going to try defending the, the contrary thesis, right, of course. Um, I'm not really a dogmatist about very much, though. So, I, you know, I might be persuaded if you were really clever. Um, you know, I'm not going to hold, I'm not going to die on that hill. But, my, yeah, I mean, I, I certainly do think there are necessary truths, right? And I, um, is the law of non-contradiction one of them? Well, may maybe it is right certainly very you know it's, it's certainly not the sort of thing that's that's um where we encounter any violations of it in everyday life of course but um you know you can you can spend your whole life reading the literature on the liar paradox and you know it's very difficult to work out what's going on there it's very difficult to just sort of i i think it, the, the more you read that type of stuff the less dogmatically you cling to the idea that non-contradictions are definitely definitely true um rather it's more a kind of starting point of western philosophy to some extent anyway it's just that's just what we're doing rather than that's the necessarily a firmly established foundation um you know aristotle has some arguments for it but they're not really that good and arguments for it either tend to be question begging or just bad so it's difficult to see other than just sort of hand waving, it really, really seems to me like it's true. Kind of what the arguments actually are for it, you know. So it's sort of so foundational that it's difficult to know um, whether it's some deep philosophical truth or it's just something where I don't know how to to argue against it. Um, so yeah, I mean, generally speaking, Monday to Friday, I'm a classical guy. But maybe on the weekends, I dabble, thinking yeah. about other things. You know. Okay, so now it's well, time for maybe, our, maybe our we could agree guest. on this, Alex. <laughs> maybe we could agree on this that necessarily either classical logic is correct or it's incorrect. <laughs> well, yes, I think that's right. Even if even if um, classical logic is is false, um, that doesn't seem to be. You know that that proposition you just uttered then seems to be true anyway. I mean, what if we the things that make me wonder whether of non-contradiction is true is that you know maybe there's some stuff in set theory that's like there's some u- utility to sort of um, adopting a different system or something. But it's certainly not the case that I'm saying you know uh, hamburgers can eat people and the, people walk upside down now or whatever because the law of non-contradiction is false, so anything goes right. Obviously, that's not the case. Uh, the people who reject non-contradiction still accept all of the basic you know, black and white facts about like concrete reality. I mean, most of them, you do occasionally find, you know, read, go and read Graham Priest and then, you know, yeah, you, I was gonna, you'll see some cool examples. Say, our surprise guest, Graham Priest is here to, to refute all of us here. But um, so I think, uh, Dr. Mappas, the, the principle of, uh, was it the principle of explosion that, that anything follows from contradiction? You're, you're saying that just, that doesn't apply. That's not a real principle. And hamburgers aren't eating people if we have some obscure contradiction in set theory. Uh, right. That's the way to do it. If you want to embrace a contradiction somewhere, you have to look okay. at an explosion. And that way you don't, you're not reduced to triviality. Okay. But, but for Dr. Anderson's point that uh, either classical logic is, is true or not true, um, that, mm-hmm. that, would, that would seem to be like at least one necessary truth, right? Oh sure, there's there's necessary truths. Okay. Um, I think that's one of them. Yeah. Okay. okay. Interesting. How about, how about um, Dr. Anderson uh, said that uh, the necessity at play uh, that him and Welty are using uh, is not metaphysical necessity, but just uh, can't can't be 
it's true in every possible world. I have right. I have such a hard time with metaphysical necessity. What do you make of that? Do you think that is that just metaphysical necessity or is that logical? Well, to me, the the notion of being true in every possible world is common to whether you're talking about metaphysical necessity, logical necessity, epistemic necessity. It doesn't really matter because the world in question uh, just characterize like a model or something. So, so if I say something's epistemically necessary, um, then I'm saying it's true in every world that's accessible to me. Mm-hmm. And that just means all the worlds where um, no, nothing that's true in those worlds contradicts what I know in the actual world. So you build up a model of epistemic modality and you're still quantifying over all of the possible worlds with your like strong modality, whatever that is. Yeah. So, and that's true when you talk about logical modality, you're just, I mean, assuming classical now, all we, all we mean is just a set of consistent, maximal and consistent propositions just characterizes all of the uh, possible worlds. And then something's mes- uh, logically necessary if it's true in all of those worlds. Yeah. Metaphysical is a slightly different, I'm not quite sure what the criteria is, but something determines whether a possible world is a metaphysically possible world, world or, or not. I I don't know, James, if you've got a view on this, but I don't know yeah. what people mean really when they, when they say metaphysical possibilities. Well, I think speaking. metaphysical necessity is, is, is some getting at some inherent necessities in reality. Like mm. um, maybe a candidate example would be that uh, nothing nothing can be both blue all over and red all over at the same right. time. That doesn't seem to be like a, a trivial logical truth, mm. but it, it does seem to get at something in the nature of colored objects that they can't be a certain way. They can be some ways, but not other ways. So I I think we have an intuitive grasp of metaphysical necessity. And actually, we we sort of take a lot of it for granted in our day-to-day inferences. But the point I was making earlier is that that the starting point for our argument doesn't require us to commit to some particular concept of metaphysical necessity. We don't use that term, even though, um, in a sense, the conclusion of our argument commits us to some certain metaphysical necessities, specifically the existence of, of God. Um, but uh, the, the the mere claim that the laws of logic are necessary truths or that there are necessary truths is a relatively thin claim. It's just the claim that something is true and it could not have been false. It could not have been otherwise than true. OK, so but let's just... It, presumably you don't mean the laws of logic are logically necessary because that just seems kind of trivial as a claim. I mean, obviously they yeah, are. That's right? Circular, right. Yeah. And also I'm, I think you're saying something stronger than that. They're epistemically necessary. You know, it just it doesn't contradict anything, you know, to say that right. all contradiction is true. Um, yeah. And it feels to me like the middle ground between those two modalities is metaphysical. Right. It's not clear what, what else you could mean. Apart from right. That. OK. I mean, you could you, you can call it that. I mean, take uh, Plantinga, for example. So Plantinga distinguishes between strict logical necessity and broad logical necessity. So strict logical necessity is something that's entailed by what the axiom, axioms of logic that you accept, whereas broad logical necessity includes other necessities, like the example that I just gave of not being red all over and blue all, all over at the same time. And I think at times he calls that metaphysical necessity uses those terms interchangeably broadly logical necessity and metaphysical necessity fine um i'm not going to fight over semantics um but the core idea is simply that of uh, a a true a proposition that is true and could not have failed to be true Mm -hmm. 
Okay. Awesome. Well, I, I would love to stay here, but we, we can't. Uh, let's move on to uh, intentionality, the notion of intentionality at play. Um, I want to go, I want to talk about Brentano's thesis, um, but uh, Dr. Mappas, maybe you could, you could summarize your, uh, your criticisms here in this section as well. Well, um, let's see if I can remember. It's been a while since I wrote this paper. Um, the idea, I think the, uh, I think the idea is something like um, that everything that's intentional is mental. That's one horn of the Brentano thesis. Um, and propositions are intentional, therefore propositions are mental. This it seems to me this sort of syllogism that's a play, one of the kind of supporting arguments that play that that's in in play in James's argument. Mm. Um and that's that's uh so I guess well one of the things I spent some time really analyzing uh, I suppose a passing reference to a paper by Tim Crane where um, uh, the, the thought was that he was coming to the, he was another uh, philosopher who was arguing the same thing as um, as James was. But it struck me that when I read Tim's paper, it didn't say what I thought James was saying it said. So there was a kind of exegetical dis- dispute there. Um we could talk about that, I suppose, but I think that a broader point than the exegetical one was um, that it's not clear to me that the best thing to say um, about what's that that everything that's intentional is mental. Um, I guess I think that there's another way of looking at this, which is um, thoughts are intentional, but so are propositions. And propositions are just not mental. So not everything that's intentional is mental. Um, and and I think we've got two theses on the table. Everything that's intentional is mental and not everything that's intentional is mental. Um, so I'm, I'm, I guess I'm willing to defend the, the negative thesis there. Um, and it might come down to, you know, are, are there really any arguments that, that James has got that I can't, counter or use for my own ends uh things like parsimony considerations or whatnot so um yeah maybe i'll turn it over to james to see uh, how do you want to present the argument i suppose well let me let me go real quick uh just for those who are, are a little bit lost um intentional just means like directed at uh from latin intensio it's from archery when your bow is pulled back it's aimed at something so there's intentionality and this is important because uh the dr anderson and welty set up that there are necessarily true propositions. And if these propositions have intentionality and if everything that is intentional, everything that has directedness is mental, then uh, these are actually thoughts and you need a, a necessary mind in which these thoughts uh, in here are, are grounded. So just uh, for everyone listening there, intentionality. Sorry, so, yeah, yeah. I, I'm maybe just as a, I guess, guess I didn't set that up very well. The, the Brentano thesis, right, is one way of looking like the intuitive bit is is a thesis about psych- psychological phenomenology like what our minds are like what it's like to have thoughts and stuff and one kind of intuitive plausible aspect to that is to say everything that's in everything that's mental is intentional right? there's no non-intentional mental items thoughts are always pointed at something emotions are already always directed at something 
right? You, your attitudes are always intentional, and it doesn't make sense to have a completely undirected uh, thought or uh, attitude, right? They're, they're, and okay, great, that does seem like a kind of key insight of phenomenology. But then you could also think maybe the maybe it goes the other way too, right? Maybe everything that's intentional is mental. And the Brentano thesis is basically both of those claims. Everything that's mental is intentional, which seems to be pretty plausible, almost trivial. And then the other thesis, which is much more controversial, which is that everything that's intentional is mental. And that's the horn that James needs to defend to prop up this aspect of the argument. And that's the one that I'm taking aim at. Yeah, I, I think I think uh, maybe Searle says that everything mental is not intentional. There's there's vague uh, ideas <laughs> or gesturings or something like that. But Dr. Anderson, what do you what do you make of of Brentano's the, the first horn of the thesis? I guess everything yeah. is intentional is mental. Is that something that you have to prove for the argument? Yeah. So we don't need to get too hung up on the Brentano thesis or what he says. I mean, I think we can make the, the sort of observations that we need to make to get the argument running independent of his claims. And I don't think that everything mental is intentional. I mean, I think there are pain states, right, that are not specifically about anything. So the, the key claim is the inference from the intentional to the mental. And what we try to do in the argument is uh, we've got to the point of arguing that the laws of logic are necessarily true propositions. And a proposition is defined as a primary bearer of truth. So that's just a sort of stipulation that the kind of thing a proposition is, it's the sort of thing that can bear a truth value, be true or false. Um, and there are a few other things you have to say about the independence of propositions from linguistic tokens and so forth, but we don't need to worry about that. But what we want to argue is that propositions as such are thoughts, okay, because that's where we want to end up with the claim that there are necessarily existent thoughts. And so what we, what we argue is that propositions have this distinctive feature of intentionality, which certainly includes aboutness, but it also includes another feature that Crane calls uh, aspectual shape. So there's, there's actually a couple of things going on here, but if a proposition uh, is intent, well, propositions by their nature are, are about certain things, but also they represent them in a distinctive way. So, uh, for example, um, you could say um, the, the, uh, the morning star is Venus and the evening star is Venus. They're, they're both referring to the same thing, but there's a different uh, way in which a certain thing is being identified, the morning star and the evening star, for example. There, there are other cases. Um, so the point is that propositions have this feature of intentionality, a very distinctive feature, that actually it's in virtue of their intentionality that they're able to be true or false. You, you, something can't be true or false unless it has this intentionality. And intentionality consists at least of this aboutness or directedness that propositions can refer to objects beyond themselves, and they can refer in a particular way that we call aspectual shape. And that's that's really what's important about Crane's article. Um, Alex is right, actually. I'll, I'll concede the point right here that some of what he says about our use of Crane's article is is correct. And Crane isn't making exactly the argument that we're making or, or, or proving the point that we're proving. But his observations about intentionality are useful for our purpose. And then so what we argue then is, well, what what other things in our ontology have this property of intentionality? And the obvious answer is thoughts. OK, thoughts um, are directed towards certain things 
and we can think about things in certain ways as opposed to other ways, so they have aspectual shape. And so we're arguing that propositions are best understood as thoughts because their having intentionality would be best explained by their being thoughts, since we know, I mean, we already have uh, thoughts as a, as a sort of basic category in our ontology. We, we know we have thoughts. I mean, how could you not think that we have thoughts, right? So um, uh, if we can explain propositions in terms of thoughts and the features of thoughts, that's a pretty nice thing. So we argue that the, there's at least a prima facie case for the claim that propositions are thoughts. Now, we're not committing to any particular kind of thoughts or possessor of thoughts. We're not saying they're divine thoughts at this stage. There are, in fact, certain accounts of propositions that identify them with human thoughts. There's a, a, a human-centric uh, conceptualist view. But all we're doing is saying that this property of intentionality is best explained by propositions being thoughts. And if, I mean, there are, there are other accounts of propositions you could give, but one of the accounts that, that I think Alex is gesturing towards is a sort of a, a, a Phrygian Platonist view, not... Platonist, not not Plato's Platonism, okay, not not that, but but a sort of more more modern view where there are certain abs, abstract entities that are are not dependent on minds that are somehow maybe necessarily existent, you know. But there's some sort of Platonic realm of propositions that simply have this feature of intentionality, uh, even though they are not thoughts, they're not mental in nature. Now. That's that's definitely an option. It's on the table. It's been defended. Our argument is that uh, that the the view that propositions are thoughts is more parsimonious. It doesn't require you to add an extra category, ontological category, to your you know inventory of kinds of things. And also, there are other benefits that conceptualism about propositions. That is, in general, the idea that propositions are thoughts has benefits over Platonism, or maybe another way to put it is that this sort of Phrygian Platonism incurs certain other costs that a lot of us want to avoid. That's a that's a great summary. So so the principle of parsimony is doing work there saying we're, we can get rid of maybe ontological bloat or, or, or a third thing. So now you have things that are intentional are thoughts. You've cut out propositions with intentions. Um, because it's it's more parsimonious. It's simpler to have an ontology that has uh, intentional things and non-intentional things versus uh, in, in non-intentional things and intentional things of two varieties, one being propositions, one being thoughts. Right. Um, I, I, Dr. Malpass, I think you brought this point up. If not, I, I got to give credit to Joe Schmidt because he's, he's, he's brought this up too. I think uh, Schmidt said that uh, the the two the uh, Phrygian or Phrygian uh, Platonism and divine conceptualism or, or, or type of conceptualism are on equal playing field because uh, because you're bringing in shareable and non-shareable thoughts into your ontology. Um, Doctor Melpest, is this a good time to bring that up, or should we wait till the dilemma to to broach that? Um, I think that's I think that's reasonable. So the I like Frege's argument. Um, so Frege has this paper from like eight, like properly ages ago. I think it was republished in 1918. I think it's 1896 or something. He write, writes this paper. Um, and it's, I think it's just called Thought. 
Um, and in that, he basically says, look, uh, we've got like physical stuff, obviously, and let's go ahead and say we've got like mental stuff too. So there's two types of stuff. Um, but there has to be a third type of stuff, he says, right? Because otherwise, communication would be impossible. That's his claim. And what he says is something like, look, I can have a thought that's about something, like I can think about the Pythagorean theorem. Um, and so can you, right? You can think about the Pythagorean theorem too. And that fact requires a third type of thing. It requires there to be, because when we have a thought that shares the same content, I don't mean that like a bit of my brain has come out of my brain and gone into your brain and there's phys some physical stuff that we share. We don't share any physical, so we don't have to share any physical stuff, like Siamese twins or something. It's not like that. But it's also the case, you know, that my thoughts are like kind of metaphysically private, right? I can tell you about what I'm thinking about, but like I, I can actually just think about anything. Right? You remember when you, this first dawns on you when you're a kid and you realize you can just swear at the teacher or whatever and in your head and they can't do anything about it because they don't know like in some way no one can ever really know what you're thinking about they're private to you and there's nothing nothing anyone can do to to solve that and unless some some advances in neuroscience take place or whatever but like they are basically private so um we're not sharing physically like we're not literally sharing thoughts as such so what do we mean when we say we're having a thought with the same content well frege's answer is there's um, some third type of thing, let's call it an abstract object, which um, is the content of our thoughts. And he's not very much about this, apart from the fact, that, well, there must be a type of thing out there and it must be able to play this role. Otherwise, communication would be impossible, but it isn't impossible. So that's that. So I, I quite like that argument. Right? I'm not saying it's completely uh, decisive or whatever, but I like it. Okay, So it seems to me that there's some kind of positive case for there being something in addition to thoughts um, and matter. Um, but then you could say, well, hold on a second, this ontology over here, this divine conceptualism, yeah, it's more streamlined, you know, and I, I want a, a bargain as much as the next man. I don't want to pay ontology where I don't need to. So sure, let's have a look at this, right? So you've got two types of thing. Um, that looks better. But when I think the details of the proposal is that human thoughts are metaphysically private, but for God's thoughts to actually play the role of abstract objects. So we're saying that, you know, some proposition like the law of non-contradiction actually just is a thought in God's mind. Well, if it's a thought in my mind, it can't play the role of the content of someone else's thought, right? They can't actually, um, uh, we can't share that as content in the way that we can when we both think about the same proposition. But so for God's thoughts to be able to play that role of being shareable, um, they actually just have to be a different type of thought. So we've, we've really got two types of thought on the table. So you've got physical stuff, shareable thoughts, like uh, non-shareable thoughts, like normal thoughts that I've got and that we, we have. And then we've got a third, uh, second type of thought, which is your shareable thought. And that's really just a third type of thing, it seems to me. And okay, we can say that they're thoughts, but there's really the, the tripartite ontology. So to me, the, part, the parsimony claim here is really as exciting as it seemed to be when it was first advertised. You know, I'm, I just don't really seem to be getting much of a bargain here. So, <laughs> um, uh, you know, I, why pick one over the other, right? It seems to, it seems to draw at best on, uh, on this one. Yeah. Dr. Anderson, um, any thoughts on that? Any thoughts? Yeah. Are they shareable <laughs> thoughts? Though? Yeah. Um, 
So, so Frege's argument is uh, is really an argument for realism about propositions. That is okay. that that our thoughts require some propositional content that is is shareable and exists independently of my thoughts and Alex's thoughts and so forth. So Frege's argument itself w does not distinguish or does not give a reason to adopt a sort of uh, Platonic realism over against a theistic conceptual realism such as Welty and I defend. So I like Frege's argument too, because <laughs> what it does is it gives us uh, reasons to think that propositions uh, exist in objectively and independently of human minds. But then the question becomes, well, what, what kind of things are there? Now, uh, Alex's pushback is that even if we say that uh, propositions are divine thoughts, that's still a different ontological kind. That is, now we've got the category of uh, maybe material things, we've got a category of human thoughts, and we've got a category of divine thoughts, and we have to treat those as separate categories as well, partly because God is not like us, We're, we don't have divine features like God does. Um, but also there's this uh, shareability criterion uh, that comes into play that if, 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 as we argue, propositions are ultimately identical to divine thoughts, then they have to be shareable between humans okay and that that makes them special yeah there's definitely something to that no we're we're certainly not going to deny that uh divine thoughts are in a in an ontological category distinct from human thoughts i mean part of our argument is that they exist necessarily um that they uh they they play the role of propositional content and so forth however uh, i'm i don't think that parsimony is doing all of the work here that is to say that there are also other explanatory benefits of uh, theistic conceptual realism that Platonism lacks. And um, one is that, as I tried to suggest earlier, the, the intentionality of propositions is well explained by mental activity. That is to say, we know that minds have the power to direct towards certain things and to think in certain ways. In other words, they have the kind of powers that we associate with directedness and aspectual shape, these, these components of intentionality. So if propositions are thoughts of some kind, whether human or divine, then that accounts well for their being in, intentional because cognitive activity is, is a good explanation, a good account of intentionality. There's also the question of, of uh, causal relevance as well. And I, I don't want to take up a lot of time with this because I know there are other topics we need to get onto. But one issue with Platonism is that if you do have these abstract entities that are, are not grounded in a mind, are sort of you know, free-floating, abstract, necessary objects that seemingly indep exist independently of us, so there's this, this one plus one equals two proposition that's there, whether I exist or you exist or any human uh, thinker uh, exists, uh, even before human beings came into existence, there are these, these propositions with intentionality. Um, that, that's an odd view, and a, a lot of philosophers have, have resisted that because it does seem to suggest that there's this, this causally inert realm of propositions, and then there's the material realm of physical you know, objects like us, and how, how is there any causal connection between them? Now, in the case of theistic conceptual realism, there is, in the nature of the case, a causal relationship between God 
and the world and God and human beings. So if if uh, propositions do turn out to be divine thoughts, then that also explains, uh, at least to some degree, their causal relevance. They're not causally inert after all. Now, of course, that's that doesn't settle things. But my point here is that I don't think parsimony is doing all the work. There's There are broader considerations of explanatory utility that I think give the edge to uh, divine conceptualism over Platonism. But that's that's not something you can settle in one conversation. <laughs> that's yeah. true. Yeah, the, the, those are all great points, uh, both sides. Um, touching about this, I, I think we've, we've kind of if we haven't already slid into it, we're, we're getting there about the, uh, the, the dilemma uh, for mm-hmm. the divine conceptualist. And um, I think it, it has to do with um, thoughts being like self-reflexive or not. And uh, in order for the argument to work, a divine thought T uh, and some law of logic P uh, they would have to be identical. T would have to be identical to P and you, do you have these two claims uh, and you're saying you're, you're drawing a, a contradiction between the two. Or, do you have that on, on the top of your head to, to lay out for us? Um, let's see. Uh, <clears throat> so I think my, what I was, what I was trying to get at, I'm, I'm not sure I succeed really, but uh, my, my thought was something like this, right? That, um, that, if the so take a divine thought that in James's uh, system plays the role of something like the law of non-contradiction, um, it does seem peculiar when you try and ask sort of basic questions about that, right? Like, I mean, thoughts have propositional content usually. So, what's the propositional content of this thought? Mm-hmm. Um, it's a question you could ask at least. And I suppose the immediate answer would be, well, the propositional content is about, you know, there can't be any propositions and their direct negations that are both true at the same time or something, right? But that just seems to be the law of non-contradiction. And uh, uh, my spidey senses are tingling when that happens. It feels to me like a regress around the corner, surely. Um, because it both is the law of non-contradiction on this account and has the law of non-contradiction as its own content. But that seems kind of odd, right? Like when I think about something, normally the thing that I'm thinking about isn't the isn't my own mental life, right? I'm thinking about, oh, it's sunny outside. Oh, I want a drink, something like that. So external pointing away from my own internal life. Um, and, you know, so in that case, the, the content is distinct from the thought. Of course, sometimes I can turn my mind's eye back on itself and I can think, oh, I'm, you know, feeling happy today or something. Or, you know, I just thought about that five minutes ago. It's funny you bring it up. Stuff like this, right? So my account, obviously, it's reflexive to some extent. But the question is, can it be like, you know, utterly reflexive? Can, can I just think about a thought that has no content other than itself? Like, does that even make sense? And I think I was trying to push the line here that it really doesn't make sense. What happens then is that, I mean, let's try and like come up with a way of speaking this, at least that makes sense. It seemed to me that you want to have as a kind of basic piece of notation or something to distinguish the thought and the content of the thought, you know, a bit like a predicate and a, and a, an object that it applies to or something, predicate and a variable or something. Um, you would say like T of P to mean the thought that has P as its proposition. And the claim on the table is that 
you could have a thought that has itself as its own content instead of a proposition distinct from it. So not the thought I just had is fun or something, but this this thought right here somehow is, is its own content. So that would be like T of T, right? And um, then I'm trying to say, well, look, uh, unlike you know the, the truth predicate, like if you start off saying like some proposition P and then you say, okay, well, it's true that P, and then you can say it's true that it's true that P, mm. and it's true that it's true that it's true, and obviously there's an infinite... I guess, regress there or whatever, progress or something. Uh, it keeps going anyway, right? Um, but it's fine because, you know, at any level of that hierarchy, there's a clear answer to what it is that's the subject of all these truth predicates, right? It's P. It's no problem. But the the regress that I thought we were getting into just then was, well, I can say T of T, but well, what's the inner instance of T? Like, what's that actually about? I've got the I've got the aboutness for the outer instance of T, but what about the inner instance of T? Yeah. And well, what are you going to do? You have to just iterate the schema again. So I'll have T of T of T, and and now I guess well, what about the inner instance of T? What's that about? And it feels to me like there, there's no answer to that. Like, there's there's just you can't settle it. All you can do is iterate this schema over and over, and that just means that you don't have any content. Just it's uh, the same as, well, it's, it's kind of an, an unstable concept that doesn't really ground out in anything. Yeah. So if that's where we are, then the conduct project seems to be kind of incoherent or something. Now, I'm not sure I really even understand my own argument here. Sometimes I feel like I don't, and maybe it's all nonsense. Um, but that was certainly the, the way I was thinking when I wrote that out. And yeah. So I'm, I'm very interested, really, to know what James thinks about that, because maybe I've gone wrong somewhere and he can explain to me what's going on. Let, let me jump in real quick. Um, you, you you did have a an interesting. I, I feel I feel the the force of it here. Um, so you're not. I don't think you're totally crazy or anything. Uh, self. You said self awareness is hierarchical, and when you have the uh, you have a thought and you have content, and I can have a thought about my thoughts, but that bumped it up to the next level, and then yeah. it bumps it up, and, and and it bumps it up because at some level we got to have like the proposition. This is a proposition, and your thought is around it. You mm-hmm. have to have the content, the proposition, and so it seems like. If the thought is about a thought in a self-reflexive way, there is no content. It's like a mirror trying to uh, image itself. There's That's like right. no reflection ever. And so, uh, Dr. Anson, I mean, what, what do you make of that um, argument, uh, intuition type thing? It's, it's very interesting. And uh, full credit to Alex, because I think this is one of the most interesting objections we've, we've had to the argument. There have been others. Um, what's What's particularly forceful about it is it's not just pointing out that there's a gap in our argument, saying, well, you, you haven't really justified this inference to that. It's actually targeting the conclusion and saying, well, there's something incoherent about the conclusion or the, or the, the theory that you're propounding here. And so uh, there has to be something wrong with your argument because you can end up with an incoherent conclusion. So that makes it particularly potent and uh, and thought provoking. If I can if I can perhaps state it in my own way, and maybe Alex can um can confirm that that I'm understanding it correctly. I think actually it follows somewhat on the back of our earlier discussion about uh, Frege's arguments about the need for propositions that exist independent of thoughts or shareable content of thoughts. So what what Frege's argument seems to show is that we have to distinguish between my thought that P and P itself, because Alex could have his own thought, his own private thought that's his mental state, we can have two distinct thoughts, but we can have 
we can think the same proposition, we can believe the same proposition or entertain the same proposition. And that implies that there has to be a distinction between the thought and the propositional content. Now, it seems to me what Alex is then doing is, is, is sort of trying to hoist us by our own petard and, uh, and say, well, if, if there's a distinction between the thought and the propositional content of the thought, then that would seem to apply to God's thoughts as well. And if that applies to God's thoughts, then God's thoughts can't be identical with a proposition or the propositional content, because there's something incoherent about saying that T is identical with the content of T or a constituent of T or a part of T. So as, as long as there's a distinction between thought and propositional content, it seems as though we can't then identify divine thoughts with propositions. So, Alex, does that sound like... Mm, that, that, that sounds right. Okay. Mm -hmm. I think our, our response is to say that what, what Frege's argument does is it shows that in the human case, in the case of human thoughts, and specifically contingent minds, we have to make a distinction between thought and propositional content for the sort of reasons that we canvassed, namely that there would be certain propositions regardless of whether I existed or you existed. There's something about the nature of propositions that they have to be objective and they have to be independent of human minds. However, that doesn't necessarily carry over into the divine case. In other words, I don't think anything in our argument commits us to saying that any kind of thought needs to be distinct from propositional content, only minimally that human thoughts. Certainly we're committed to the claim that human thoughts have to be distinguished from their propositional content, but we're arguing that something has to play the role of that propositional content, or something has to play the role of propositions. There has to be some sort of metaphys metaphysical grounding or reality to that to account for why there are where there is this propositional content that is what it is, independent of our thinking, and that God's thoughts are the best candidates to play the role of propositions. And so we're actually not committed to the claim that God's thoughts have propositional content. Uh, we make that distinction in the human case, but in the divine case, we want to say that God's thoughts just are the propositions, uh, at least the, the propositional content of our thoughts. So what we, what we call propositions that we share between our thoughts those are, in fact, identical to divine thoughts. And so divine thoughts don't have propositional content. Divine thoughts are the propositional content for human thoughts. So we're not even saying something like uh, divine thoughts are their own propositional content. That would certainly raise the kind of worries that Alex has been articulating. But I don't think we're committed to that claim. As long as we can make the claim that, that God has thoughts, and those thoughts have the kind of features that satisfy a good account of propositional content, then I think, I think at least our position is, is coherent and it doesn't fall into the kind of regress that, that Alex um, worries about. Okay, so can I just respond? Because so, I, I do see the thought behind that move. That, right, so I think where I worry that problem with taking that route it seems to me is it's i think it creates a tension with the earlier part of your argument right because aren't we supposed to be starting off tickling our intuitions with the idea that well you know well why think that propositions are thoughts at all well it's because they're intentional 
Um, and now we find at the end of the journey, we're offered an account of divine thoughts that are really not intentional because they don't have any content. So uh, why should I think these are even thoughts? I mean, at all of this point, you know, you were saying previously, well, there's this uh, bargain on the table. Right? We've already, we already know that thoughts have the power to be about things and have aspectual shape and stuff. But when we come to look at the, the thoughts that you're presenting to us, they're not like that at all. They're in fact completely different. They're basically just propositions. I mean, the fact that you want to call them part of God, I mean, that's fine. But like they're as far away from thoughts are, you know, my humdrum normal human thoughts as propositions. Are. I mean, they're just they're basically inert um, contents of thoughts. Right, that you've made them play the role of proposition so much that they now don't look like thoughts anymore, at least normal thoughts. So all that bit in the argument that led up to it, where we're supposed to be thinking, oh, there is some similarity between propositions and thoughts. Maybe propositions just are thoughts. And it seems to me that's undermined by the, this conclusion. If you take the, if you avoid my dilemma by just saying, oh well, God's thoughts don't have any content, then I guess. It seems to me there's there's still a tension there. It's difficult to resolve that. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think I think so. Uh, perhaps you're saying there's sort of a bait and switch that we're we're arguing from certain intuitions about the nature of thoughts, and then the kind of thoughts that we end up with are nothing like our thoughts. Well, they are and they aren't. I mean, obviously there's <laughs> some very significant differences between divine thoughts and human thoughts, and uh, that that's you know that no one's going to I think. Uh, quibble with that uh, God's thoughts let's just leave aside the question of propositions assuming for the sake of argument that there is such a being as God and that God has uh, a, a mental life or has engages in cognitive activity and so there's something that we can call uh, divine thoughts they're obviously going to be different they're going to exist necessarily they're not going to be dependent on maybe some sort of physical substrate they're not going to uh, they're going to be uh, eternal they're um, they're not going to be uh, vary from one human being to another. There, there's going to be a lot of features that divine thoughts have that do, human thoughts have, but it's precisely those features that allow them to play the role of propositions. Um, and it's the it's really the intentionality feature. Now you said, well, how can God's thoughts be intentional if they don't have propositional content? Because they are playing the role of propositions. If propositions are those things that have intrinsic intentionality, then divine thoughts would have that feature, precisely because divine thoughts are the, 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 the their cognitive acts. They're, they're God directing his mind in a certain way. And, and uh, you know, if, if thoughts have intentionality, then that's one of the, as it were, common features of divine thoughts and human thoughts, that they both are about things and uh, about things in certain ways. Yeah, okay. And that kind of makes sense. Uh, and maybe this is just me saying the same thing again, but another way of thinking about it is let's compare theories for a moment. And let's, I'll just be a Platonist for the sake of the argument, right? So I think that there are you know, Phryg a Phrygian Platonist, not Plato-Platonist, right? But, so I think that there's abstract objects, whatever, propositions, mathematical objects, stuff like that. Um, and it's a, it's a third type of thing, for sure, and it has intrinsic intentionality, let's just say. Um, I'm just... I, so now we've gone all the way to the end of the story and we see that the God's thoughts are, like, really, really similar to these abstract objects. They're just... They're just like we're calling them mental, but it's not really mental in the same way that 
all of the mental stuff we're familiar with is mental. It's mental in a different way. Um, aren't we back to just, you know, is apples and oranges, or is it just like, I'm just failing to see like really what the what the benefit is of this. I mean, because can't I just like why should I change my mind about? Well, I've got an account over here where propositions are intrinsically intentional, and maybe God exists. Even it's not it's anything atheistic about this. God could just exist alongside all of these propositions. I guess you're giving up some kind of doctrine of sovereignty or whatever, but really that's not my problem. This is this is an in-house <laughs> problem for you guys. Right. But um, you know, certainly from my point of view. I seem to be able to explain everything I want to explain without having to reach for uh, there being um, something mental about it. I just, I just sort of feel now, like I started off at the very beginning saying, well, the way I think about met- metaphysical stuff is like trying to balance lots of considerations and come to conclusions with the best of all of the information, like what's the best model point towards. And um, I'm not seeing why it points decisively in favor of, uh conceptualism here at all it feels again it's just like a draw at best um mm. do you see what i mean yeah yeah i do and and you're right that in the end we are we're evaluating competing accounts of of propositions i mean you've got the you know the hardcore anti-realists who just want to deny the existence of propositions altogether yeah. <laughs> you've got some who want to characterize them maybe as sets or as sentences You've got the, um, the the human conceptualists who want to argue that propositions do exist, but they're human thoughts in some way, maybe thought tokens, maybe thought types, different variations. You've got the Platonist who wants to say that they are necessarily existent abstract objects that are not mind dependent in any way. They're not in, intrinsically mental, even though they have this intrinsic intentionality. And you've got the, the divine conceptualist who wants to argue. And... Um, I mean, the, the way the way you really have to resolve this or try and work your w- way through the issues is, and, and this is, I think, what, what Greg Welty has done quite effectively in his own work on this, is to ask the question, well, what sort of things do we need from propositions? What, what sort of features must they have in order to play the role that we take them to play? And then which of the accounts... Um, uh, best satisfies or be- best best explains those features in a sort of um, coherent, unified way. And it's hmm. interesting that there are certain arguments uh, about the nature of propositions that push us towards Platonism, right? That, uh, you know, some people favor Platonism, those who are, you know, inclined by Frege's arguments, because they recognize that these propositions have to somehow exist independently of human thoughts. They have to be objective in some way out there right so there's the there's the platonist impulse but there's also the conceptualist impulse and this is where some other philosophers go because of the intentionality of propositions they want to try and find some mental account because intentionality Mm. seems best explained by by being grounded in a mind that has these sort of powers Um, so there's a pressure towards platonism and there's a pl- pressure towards conceptualism. And of course, if you're not a theist, you, you, you're going to have to resort to some sort of human conceptualism. But that has its shortcomings as well. And arguably, the, the beauty of divine conceptualism is it satisfies both those impulses. It satisfies <laughs> the Platonist impulse towards objectivity and necessary existence. But it also satisfies the conceptualist impulse towards intrinsic mentality. Um, so that's sort of a, a snapshot maybe of how we might think about some of the, the competing positions here. 
It's a nice pitch. I've got to say, I, I like it more now you said that. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, we've made progress here. Um, well, uh, unless there's anything else to, to say on, on those last couple of points, uh, we got a couple questions here from the chat. Um, any, anything else before we jump into those guys? Well, let me just float an idea that I've only occurred to me during this conversation, which was, and I, maybe this is stupid, right? But could you say, well, you know, back on the, my side of the fence for a moment, um, is it plausible to suppose that the in if you want to say, well, hold on, um, how what's the work, the theoretical work here that we need to get done? Um, and I need to say something about like the intentionality of propositions. And you were taking it for granted that well, obviously thoughts are intentional, so um, easy to slot one concept into the other. Then propositions must be thoughts or something. Maybe I could say something like, well. Um, the only thoughts that are intentional are those that have propositions as their content, right? I'm not sure if that maybe this is, has obvious counterexamples, but, you know, the the thought that, you know, it's sunny outside or something is intentional in virtue of the fact that it has a proposition as, as, as its content. And so it's only when propositions kind of crop up in thoughts that they uh, are intentional. So that my thought is only kind of derivatively intentional on the basis that, that there's a proposition in, on on the scene contributing its intentionality to my thought but maybe that's stupid uh, like i said i so it's a thought that occurred to me during the conversation so i don't know james am i being stupid i probably am i'm sure you're not being stupid but uh, <laughs> you know i think i think this is part of where the 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 Freigian argument seems to sort of push us that what is it accounts for the intentionality of my thought and your thought that we have the shared thought that's about something well there's this propositional content but then but then to to suggest that what makes a thought propositional is its propositional content. That seems to me question begging in this mm. dialectical context. Um, and also, it's really ultimately then committing you to some version of non-theistic Platonism, you know, something along those lines. So I'm not sure that that's a move that's, it seems to be doing an end run around some of the considerations that we've been trying to bring forth. Yeah, okay. I'll forget I'll put it down then. Forget about that. <laughs> well, I wonder, um, if I could jump in, I wonder if you made the intentionality derivative, the thoughts intentionality derivative derivative of the proposition, then would the thought then not be about the proposition? Because the it, it wouldn't have any intentionality mm. like until it gets I know it's kinda weird to say it. I I think I'm being stupid now. But I think I'd have to say something different about it being related to the proposition okay. rather than it being about the proposition. Yeah, there's, really there's a difference between a thought having a proposition and content and a thought being about a proposition. So if I have the thought yeah. that Paris is beautiful in the spring, that thought isn't about a proposition. That, <laughs> that thought is about Paris. But the thought has propositional content, uh, which has intentionality and it's directed towards Paris and, and so forth. Now, we can have thoughts that are also about propositions. Like I'm, I'm thinking about the proposition that one plus one equals two, but that would be a special case. So it's important to try and keep that yeah. distinction between having content and being about uh, the content. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Um, Dr. Mepos, I do see like, a, I, I wanna think about it more, but with at least Searle's understanding uh, saying that, you know, there's these like vague things that don't, the thoughts that don't have intentionality. That, that is an interesting thing to think about propositions being the the source of the intentionality i'm, I'm going to jump on the chew on that a little bit more myself mm -hmm. um let's let's jump into some questions here we don't have a ton 
Um, and we might have to make sense of them and, and steel man them ourselves here. But uh, here's one for Dr. Anderson. Does divine conceptionalism run into Russell's set paradox? Parentheses, God's thought T, which is about all God's thoughts that aren't about themselves, is about T, if and only if it is not. <laughs> Interesting. Um, yeah, that's... Uh... Yeah, that's a that's an interesting application of Russell's set paradox. I think if it if it is a problem, it's not particularly a problem for defining conceptualism because you can you can run that paradox against Platonism above above uh, against different accounts as well. Mm. So maybe we just have to say that there are some some inherent limits on the kind of thoughts that God has. Um, you know, there are other uh, arguments like, you know, Cantor has these arguments against divine omniscience because there can be no no set of all true propositions and so forth. Mm-hmm. And it's possible that these problems are actually problems in set theory rather than any particular application of set theory. So, mm-hmm. you know, maybe maybe it's just once you start talking about divine uh, conceptualism with the apparatus of set theory that these paradoxes arise, but it's not something that's a problem distinctive to divine conceptualism. That's my sort of off-the-cuff response to something like that. Yeah, that's interesting. That, I think that would push it to what we were talking about before with uh, epistemic uh, modality, that it's just, it, it, it could be a problem with our with our cognitive framework. Does that sound right? Or is it with actual set theory itself? Well, of course, set, set theory is, is a construction. It's a way of thinking about things. Of course, there's a existential debate over whether sets are actual objects and so right. forth and and these these are related for sure um but it's possible that this objection that's being raised here uh could be cast um in terms that don't use that set theory maybe it's just that we're saying something like you know god has thoughts about god's thoughts but um you know there's certain conditions that a uh, that a comprehensive divine thought must have i i don't have an immediate answer to that but um like i say it's a sort of puzzle it's a philosophical puzzle that that crops up in different areas and i'm not sure that it's going to be um a compelling objection to divine conceptualism as such Okay. It would Dr. be more compelling yeah. if, for some reason, you were committed you know, as part of the argument to naive set theory. Now you're in trouble if you if that was part of the setup. Right. But of course you're That's not. Right. So, I mean, is this a problem for? Maybe it's a problem for any realist account of propositions that uh, allows the types of constructions you get in naive set theory. Um, and if so, it would be it would afflict the Platonist who who makes that type of move as well as the so sometimes when we're doing these types of weighing uh, big, big theories against each other, you find arguments that, that look really damaging. You thought, oh, great, this was a golden bullet. I've absolutely destroyed a silver bullet. I've killed the other guy. And then you realize, oh, yeah, but this applies just as much to me as to, as to the other theory. And so it's no help in distinguishing between these two. I think yeah. here we've got one of these. Um, it, do- it certainly doesn't tell in favor of Platonism, it seems to me, anyway. Yeah. So um, just this one's for me, but we've assumed uh, Platonism concerning propositions uh, for the sake of the argument. And, um, you know, Dr. Anderson, I, I know you are a Platonist concerning propositions. Uh, well, hold on. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> hold on. Define Platonism. Because well, see, see, that's what I want to do. Realism, yeah, just realism. The that, that they, they exist. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. In that thin sense, lowercase 
peak Platonism. All right, I'll, I'll grant that. Okay, yes, that that realism, uh, Doctor Mappas. I think that I don't know. You said that you uh, you like uh, Frigga's argument. Are you are you a uh, a realist concerning propositions? I know you said you're not very dogmatic about stuff, but what do you think? I, I don't have a membership card or anything like that. Yeah, not um, yet. But I, I, I like the theory, but I, I couldn't say I've done anything like uh, serious work on it to to back it up. I mean, um, my friend Scott Berman has a really good book about Platonism that was out last year, which is a really great like kind of introductory text. So I think if people want to read more about that, I, mean, I should probably go and read it again and have another think about it. And in fact, I think I have it here somewhere, but... Um, I would go and look at that first of all. Don't listen to me about whether or not Platonism is true, anyway. <laughs> well, I, I thought it, it might be worthwhile just briefly, if we can, to to think why why might we think that um, propositions are real? We we've assumed them for the sake of argument, but but why think that? Um, either either one, yeah. Well, we we talked about Frege's argument, right? That mm -hmm. it seems difficult to explain what's going on with communication if you don't have something that's that's there but um maybe think about like basic geom geometry that everyone did at school um even if you only did uh geometry when you were a small child you would have still presumably done stuff like um work out formally that the internal angles of the triangle no matter what the uh how you draw it they always add up to 180 degrees um you know, ask yourself what what is that actually about? But that um, that result, because it probably isn't the one that you drew with a compass. You know, no matter how careful you were at drawing it, um, there are imperfections. Maybe the lines didn't actually meet each other. You know, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. The piece of paper probably wasn't perfectly flat. You know, all this stuff. So, and and if you destroyed all of the representations of triangles around, it just doesn't seem like it has anything to do with the the result that you gathered there. I mean, that was the thing that showed you the fact, but the fact doesn't seem to rely on the, the thing that showed you the fact for it being true. So um, people who want to deny that there's any reality to propositions or any, any abstract objects at all, uh, nothing but matter, uh, that type of view, they, they have a difficult time here, it seems to me, in trying to work out a good account of just basic stuff like that, like yeah, so so people do, right? There's philosophers who defend almost anything, but like um to me there's always seems to be or you know, in my PhD I proved a theorem in, in a specific area logic, right? And it always struck me that I came across a theorem that was already basically there and I may have like worked it out and proved it, but it I didn't make it, right? Like it was discovered almost, you know. So I really do get the strong impression that there are there's a kind of abstract aspect to reality tr transcends the basic kind of physical uh material that, that that's around us right and i mean like, uh, the concept of physical matter is already quite mysterious in contemporary physics right so I think we should just let go of the fact that there's not just billiard balls bumping into each other there's more than that and abstract objects are not really that strange when when you look at what contemporary physics says about the world so i think we should just be cool with it and just get over this <laughs> annoying uh, skepticism that anti-realists have towards these types of things. It's a fine theory to think, and it's got lots of historical pedigree, and it makes sense of the world in a nice way. That's, that's what I would say about it. That's huge. That's Dr. Anderson, anything to add? 
Yeah, just a few things briefly. First of all, let let the record show that Alex says that materialists have a problem with propositions. Uh, right. I know he's he's not one, but it, this often isn't recognized. And uh, uh, you know, a lot of critics of theistic arguments are materialists, and I don't think they've really thought through the the powerful arguments uh, just for the existence of of certain abstract objects, such as propositions. So so there's that. Um, broadly speaking, uh, arguments for realism about propositions. Um, basically two categories, those from ordinary language. So there are certain claims that we make that seem to have ontological commitments. So if I say um, there, there are bears in Alaska, that seems on the face of it to commit me to the existence of bears, right? And if I say there are things that Mary believes, that seems to commit me to the existence of some things that are the objects of Mary's beliefs. Especially if I say something there, like, like um, there are things that both Mary and Dan believe, now I'm seem to be committing myself to the existence of certain things that are the objects of their beliefs, but aren't identical to those beliefs, they're somehow shared. So there, there are ordinary, ordinary language arguments. And then there are what we might call explanatory utility arguments, where um, a realist theory of proposition explains certain things that seem implied by things we take for granted, like the existence, as Alex suggests, of, of truths that have yet to be discovered. Um, just if you think about mathematics, there's, there's an infinite number of mathematical truths, it seems, none of which uh, any human mind could, could, could entertain or, or be the ground of. And we're discovering new truths all the time. So if we say there are truths that are yet to be discovered, that again seems to commit us to the existence of of these truths, or these truth-bearing propositions, um, and there are there are other things like um, like communication, the fact that I can communicate a thought to Alex, and so that we can have the same thought. Um, the language, so translating a sentence from one language to another language, from say English to French, if if a, if a translation is successful, it seems as though there is something that is maintain constant that's independent of the sentences, the English sentence and the French sentence. And again, a realist theory of propositions um, seems, you know, a natural explanation for how there can be something, some content that we can express in one language and another language. And th there are other examples here, but actually there's quite a, a interesting raft of uh, independent arguments that point towards the same conclusion, um, which is, you know, it doesn't commit you all the way to something like divine conceptualism, but at least it gets you to the point of let's take the existence of these things proposition seriously and now ask what other features must they have to do the kind of things that we, we assume they do. This is awesome. We started with this contention over the argument, and now we're we're all just bashing uh, deflationary theorists over there, which yeah. is fantastic. <laughs> Common ground. Um, all right. So, uh, Dr. Malpass, are are you aware of any argument or paper or whatever that questions the correctness of the law of identity? Is it even possible to do so? Um. Well, it depends exactly what you mean by the law of identity, I guess. But um, there's the so some there's a law that's sometimes called Leibniz's law, which is the uh, which is no, now I'm trawling back through my mind to something I haven't thought about for years. But like when we talked about Brentano's the thesis earlier, where it had two directions to it, there's Leibniz's law is sometimes cashed out a bit like that. So it's saying um, for any x and y, if 
X and Y share all the same properties, then X is identical to Y. Um, so for two things to be non-identical, there has to be some property that they that one of them has that the other one doesn't have. Um, so you could say uh, every pair that has the same properties is identical, or you could say the other way around, everything is identical, um, shares every property with anything else uh, that it's identical to, although there's... I'm saying out loud now in a way that makes it sound really stupid the other direction, but if I wrote it down, I'm sure it would make more sense. And um, again, this is something probably James can correct me on, but that that idea of what identity consists in has been challenged. And there's um, there's stuff in the philosophy of physics about that with where you can have, I think it's photons or something where they basically do have all the same properties as one another. They're indistinguishable and they're like, they're more like, their ontology seems to be like, apparently, from quantum field theory or whatever it is, that it's like, you know, if I give you five pounds and you put it in the bank, and then the, the next day you go to the bank and withdraw five pounds, and if someone said, are they, is that the same five pounds I put in yesterday? Like, especially if it's like a digital transaction or whatever, it just doesn't make any sense to ask whether it's the same one or a different five pounds. They're all the same, right? You've got so many of them, that's fair enough, but to ask which one is which doesn't make any sense, right? It's just, they're all just the pounds that you have in the bank or the dollars or whatever. So if photons are like that, then they do display behavior that clashes with Leibniz's law. So that sort of idea of identity has been questioned. If you just mean for all X, X equals X, then I don't know of any system that seriously proposes a different law there. Propositional logic doesn't have that as a law because doesn't have identity mm -hmm. so in that sense it's not a law of classical propositional logic but that's a bit of a cheat i guess it doesn't <laughs> really mean that it's false and it's just not yeah. expressible right. so I, I guess it's a long way of saying no i don't know of any <laughs> uh, system okay awesome all right uh another one for dr anderson can you go over the distinction between multiple instantiation of thoughts which welty rejects and the multiple exemplification of thoughts which welty accepts so does it make sense? I know they're switching I'm, between Aristotelian and uh, Platonist language there. I'm not familiar with that that terminology, and I'm, I'm trying to I'm trawling my mind for some place where Welty makes that distinction: multiple instantiation of thoughts and the multiple exemplification of thoughts. I I, I wonder if this is referring to divine thoughts or thoughts in general. I'm. I, I'm sorry I, to let down the, the questioner, but I, I think there's a context to this question that I'm I'm missing. So, sorry. Um, rather than just bluffing my way through it, I'll just be <laughs> ignorant. Yeah, that's great. Okay, uh, for Dr. Malpass, uh, if the Lord of Not Contradiction is false, then how can we ever show that something is necessarily false? Is all knowledge provisional on this view? Um, well... Uh... <laughs> If if so, if you're a um, the law of non-contradiction. Sorry, not the Lord of non-contradiction. <laughs> yeah. So, if if the law of non-contradiction is false, um, as I was suggesting earlier on, that needn't change very much at all, right? It, what it does mean is that mm. um, you can't say in every single case that you've derived a contradiction. Therefore, the assumption was false. But it doesn't mean that you're never allowed to do that, right? It just means that you can't always do that. There's some subset of cases where that rule of um, arguing by contradiction isn't going to work, 
right? So even so, if you say something like um, the the liar sentence is your assumption, and then you derive a contradiction from it, and then you say, oh, well, it must be that that's false. Then the dialetheist is going to say something like, well, maybe not, right? Uh, maybe maybe it is, just is a contradiction, and it's true anyway. Um, and then if you say, well, does that mean that hamburgers eat people then or whatever? He's going to say, no, it doesn't, right? It doesn't necessarily have any consequences outside of that, like strict domain, the rarefied air of paraconsistent set theory or whatever might be the only place that it occurs. So it's kind of quarantined away from everything else. And if that's right, then you can go ahead and use um, argument by contradiction everywhere else so that you can mm. find it. So you could still prove things are necessarily false in exactly the same way as you did in, in the first place. So think about it like this. And this is an analogy I brought up in the paper. You know, you might say, um, well, every mathematical truth has to be provable, right? Um, otherwise, well, you know, can you just take two things over here and another two things over there and fail somehow when you try and add them together? Because, like, surely I can just prove that those things in combination, they equal four things. Right? It's just trivial mathematical thing I can do. So what does it mean if there's some mathematical truths that are not provable? Well, the whole point of the Gödel's incompleteness theorems is that there are going to be some arithmetic sentences that are not provable, but it doesn't mean that it's any of the ones you've ever come across, right? It doesn't actually have any effect on the ones that you've come across. Um, and they're like random things. They're not random. They're, they're um, esoteric things that unless you're really fully embedded in the literature on that, you're just never going to come across so it what's its consequences if there are no if there are some arithmetic truths that are not provable none none that you're ever going to come across buddy so like don't worry about it and it's the same thing with uh, the law of non-contradiction seems to me it might just be you know something that doesn't bother the likes of us right it's grand priest's thing to worry about but it's not our, it's right. Not our worry, right yeah, that's uh, an interesting point, too, is that uh, J.C. Beale um, says, you know, Christ is a contradictory being. And so maybe it's just one instance of the law of non-contradiction failing, and yet other things can be necessarily false. Um, mm -hmm. Dr. Hanson, I wanted to just get your thoughts. I know that the argument doesn't hinge on on this, but uh, just in your own view, do you think the – what do you make of the principle of explosion? Do we – is it is it not true? Uh, I I think it is – I think it is true, but that's because I'm I'm still inclined to accept uh, classical logic. I'm a friend. Uh, I'm afraid our, our mutual friend J.C. Beale hasn't yet persuaded me to come over <laughs> to the dark side and uh, embrace subclassical logic. What he has what he has persuaded me of is that denying the law of non-contradiction doesn't in itself commit you to an explosion principle. Mm. That that necess a, a subclassical you can have a a subclassical logical system that does not affirm the the universal application, let's say, of the law of non-contradiction, but also um, doesn't result in logical explosion, um, all, all, every proposition being true. Um, and the way he puts it, I think, is he, he suggests that there are different domains um, and perhaps contradictions are ruled out in principle in certain domains. For example, he thinks that in mathematics, no, no, that no contradictions are true. No contradictions can be true. That's something about the nature of the domain. But he is, I think, open-minded about the possibility of contradictions in other domains, particularly in these sort of funny um, cases like the liar paradox, which is, as Alex says, uh, I mean, that really uh, pushes you to the, to the limits because... Seriously. 
for, for every answer that you give to the liar paradox, you can develop a, a new version of it that evades mm. that objection. And, uh, you know, it's like chasing chasing a rabbit. You never catch up with it. Um, but so, yeah, I, I, I still think that I'm, I'm still stubbornly uh, committed to the idea that there are no true contradictions. Um, but our argument, uh, the Lord of Non-Contradiction, uh, doesn't depend on that yeah. claim in particular. And, um, yeah, so... There we go. Okay. All right. So last thing here, uh, just a uh, follow-up on Darwin's greatest hits. Uh, he says, Welty rejects Gould and Davis's view that God's thoughts are multiply instantiated on page 108 of Beyond the Control of God, question mark, and, ask, uh, and accepts exemplification on page 187. Um, I say question mark because Dr. Gould is a close friend and yells at me every time I forget the question mark. It's beyond the control of God, question mark, on the book. Um, so there's that, uh, Dr. Anson. Two, uh, one, one last question for each of you guys. Um, uh, Dr. Anson, coffee or tea? Coffee. Always okay. coffee. Dr. Malpass, <laughs> coffee or tea? Well, coffee in the morning and tea in the afternoon, obviously. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Fantastic. Um, well, we found some common ground here. We're, we're hammering away at... Um, non-platonist or non-realist concerning propositions, which is fantastic. We had a great conversation. Thank you both for your substantive work and for engaging. And uh, I've been terrified the whole time, but you guys really put me at ease. This has been really fun. So uh, thanks for, for everything both of you guys are doing and have done on the podcast today. Thank you. And thank you to Alex. Really enjoyed the conversation. A lot of fun. Yeah, a lot of fun. I'm very glad that we got to talk the issues over. And in a nice way, there's no need to be, no need to make this uh I hate when people have these arguments and they get all upset and take it personally and stuff like that. Yeah. Right. Get a life, you know. Yeah, that's right. Awesome. Well, that's going to have to do it, folks. Uh, this has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God.